This episode of The Matt Report is brought to you by SearchWP. Find SearchWP at searchwp.com. Let's talk about the power of their metrics add-on for a moment. Since I redesigned the Matt Report website, I put search front and center on my homepage. Why? Search WP metrics. Metrics give me the inside data to what visitors on my site are looking for. I love the graphs and the actionable advice that it provides me. I can make informed decisions to create new content or optimize existing content that my audience is searching for. Remember when Google gave you all of that search data? Yeah, it was great back then, way back then when they gave it to us. They don't give it to us anymore. Put on-site search front and center for your visitors. Get that data back. Get SearchWP at searchwp.com along with their metrics add-on. That's searchwp.com. Thanks for supporting the show. Hey, if you're like me and you need to get better at SEO, Brendan Hufford, creator of SEO for the rest of us, visit seoforthereustofus.org slash Matt. That's seoforthereustofus.org slash Matt. This might be the most no-brainer ad spot I've ever had to read. Let me just read off of the page of what Brendan has to offer for us. If you go to seoforthereustofus.org slash Matt, thing number one you can get is join the free one ranking away five-day SEO challenge, a daily email with one one essential SEO action to take that day toward your business goals. Number two, get 80% off the Need for Page Speed Challenge. In May 2021, Google will be rolling out a major ranking factor update, and that will be Page Speed. So if you want to join that challenge, you can get 80% off. Or thing number three, 90 days of Brendan's membership SEO for the rest of us. Forget this, $0. Yes, $0 for 90 days. You can join the SEO for the rest of us membership for free seo for the rest of us.org slash matt seo for the rest of us.org slash matt seo for the rest of us.org slash matt thanks for supporting the show failures in business become our greatest lessons there are 100 moments of failure in my career that have redirected the course of my business building journey while they sting in the moment even collapse relationships or new opportunities i can't help but learn from them But failures in business is not the lesson today. No, it's about how we take our business persona. You know, the stuff we tweet about, throw on the gram, scribe into our LinkedIn profiles, and sew them directly into the fabric of our self-worth. I mention failure because often, well, for me anyway, failure equals fear. Fear of failing means I might not be accepted by you. You might not think of me as someone who can, but someone who cannot. I am directly attaching my self-worth to my revenue, and that's wrong. A.D. Pinar joins us today to explore these very vices in his new book, Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. Sure, you know him as one of the founding fathers of WooCommerce, but he's so much more than that. You're listening to The Matt Report, a podcast for the resilient digital business builder. Subscribe to the newsletter at mattreport.com slash subscribe and follow the podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Better yet, please share this episode on your social media. We'd love more listeners around here. Okay, let's get into the show with Adi. I think many listeners here knows me as a co-founder of WooCommerce. And after WooCommerce, I went off to build a product that went through three rebrands. First Receiptful, then we called it for Conver- you called it Convergio for the longest time. And then post-acquisition, we became CM Commerce. And over there, we built email marketing automation for e-commerce brands. So for me, that really was that continuation of learning how to not only build a platform with WooCommerce, but how to build software and tools for e-commerce brands. So 
I bought, we bought that. I sold that to Campaign Monitor in August 2019. Spent much of last year with you know Campaign Monitor building the product there and leading the team, and then very recently got into my brand new gig called Cogsy, where we're helping e-commerce brands again in common denominator, but helping e-commerce brands uh, make smarter inventory purchasing decisions. And I remember when you came out with Receiptful, and at the time I remember. Well, of course, obviously the the sort of exit from WooCommerce, and just fascinated from and, and for total transparency because this was what when when was Receiptful? How many years ago was that? Yeah, so I I officially left Woo end of 2013, and Receiptful launched the first version in the first version for WooCommerce, and then Shopify was released uh, November 2014. So we had a Stripe version before that that was like a, you know private-ish kind of beta, but then kind of the proper Receiptful that got us started in the kind of e-commerce space November 2014. And I mean that's like. In, in tech years, that's like 20 years <laughs> yeah. ago. In COVID years, that's like 50 years ago. And I remember that was like the first time that I looked at a company I was and I, it, admiring and just scratching my head going, how is he going to turn a business into this micro service, right? And I was kind of just like fascinated by it. And I, it was the first time I actually paused and said, wow, like this is like a hyper-focused thing my God, I'm interested to see how he turns this into a business and you exited and you sold it. So, I mean, obviously it was a success. How did you go from this massive e-commerce play to this tiny little nugget of an e-commerce experience? um, So probably two thoughts that comes to mind there, Matt, is I think the first thing that I now know this is one of those things that I learned in hindsight is Receiptful initially grew so well. And the context for everyone here is Receiptful started out as a very simple tool for us to send email receipts or order confirmation emails for e-commerce brands and basically allow you to interject kind of some kind of marketing. So initial version, you could kind of, you know, add a, a unique coupon code, a personalized coupon code for a future purchase. And at that stage, like we pioneered that within kind of the, definitely the, the kind of Shopify space. I'm not aware that anyone else did it in the WooCommerce space. So, that we did initially and we solved this one thing and we grew so well because we were unique in that sense that I actually think we we got to, I, I want to say like one and a half million dollars ARR and we skipped past product market fit because at that stage we started expanding the product. We started doing kind of more full spectrum kind of email marketing automation for e-commerce brands, i.e. sending different types of emails. And I actually think we skipped that kind of part of market fit by not focusing and narrowing down on, on a single thing. So that's the first you know, thought that kind of pops to mind there. But the second thing that pops to mind is I think when, when building software these days, I, the users expect so much more before they adopt anything. And I think the, the key there is meaning the, the UI and the UX needs to be really great. The value proposition needs to be really great. And to do that in a way that is, kind of focus or close to MVP, i.e. you're not overbuilding before you're validating the idea and stuff, I think you need to be like truly kind of dialed in into solving a very specific and a single product is problem for your customers. And that's effectively what, what we did because we were we had that dialed in with Receiptful, that allowed us to create that momentum and a bit of escape velocity to then ultimately build up the resources that allowed us to go slightly broader and ultimately bigger to to build a more mature product that could be acquired. Was that a surprise to you that you sort of skipped that product market fit phase at the, at that time? Uh, no, because I thought we had product market fit, right? So I think I think that's <laughs> the thing because we I think we just misread the growth or the reasons for our growth at least, and which meant that I think in like year three and parts of year four, 
we were building on top of a, I wouldn't say a false hypothesis, right? But a hypothesis that wasn't fully true. And we probably did more things than we needed to do, whereas we could have probably specialized or been more narrow in terms of the product for much, much longer. Hmm. Do you think it's, I I guess, that that phase that you were in where you were like, ah, yeah, we we sort of skipped past, went to 1.5 ARR pretty darn quick. Is that, do you think that's still possible today? Do you think you were so early in people just looking at software and going, give it to me, just give it, I'll take it. Like, I don't care what it is. There's no other competitors. Do you, do you think that's difficult to achieve these days for a lot of new startups? Yes, I definitely think it's difficult. I do. I also know off the top of my head, I've at least five companies that have done similar in recent months and not just kind of COVID infused, right? So it is definitely possible. I, but I do think like, what I will say is this, I think building any kind of software these days, it has become, if you're not, especially if you're not the builder yourself, it has become much harder to bootstrap software, right? Because that that expectation of what a, not even an MVP, but of a first version is, is just so much more than what it used to be when we started out. And this is only, as you mentioned, like this is only six years ago, right? So I, I think it is harder. And I think finding that initial escape velocity is also much harder because every single space is just super congested. So really kind of, I think the, the key there again is like just niche down to solving a really intimate, specific problem and try and solve just one problem in a really unique way, I think that looks like that's still the way forward. Like if you can do that, you can always have that halo effect outwards from by using that initial success. But that seems to be the the most prevalent kind of successful game you know, game plan for this new software company starting today. Yeah. You are like the the rock star that gets on stage and everyone says that they want to play their favorite song. You, in fact, were a rock star, right? At one point, literally, quite yeah, literally. That's, uh, that, that's one of the things about that. <laughs> you say yeah. that with you. Like, if, if you were just listening, he said that and sort of frowned like, oh, God, yes, I was a rock star. It's, it's one of those things that the internet makes hard to kind of live down. Like anyone still Googling 80 rock star, like there's still, yeah. there's breadcrumbs there. Like you can... Go down the rabbit hole if you yeah. so please. I mean, I'm I'm I, I'm not <laughs> going to entertain it, but yeah, that rabbit hole is there. So, so I won't ask you what everyone likes. What everyone likes to to ask you about, like WooCommerce and all this stuff. But what I what I've been fascinated about more recently is, and I'm sure you've probably seen it and maybe even invested in it. I'm not sure, but like this whole no code, low code space is just fascinating to me because it's that same kind of excitement that you saw probably way before me and I saw 12, 15 years ago with WordPress, like this excitement of being able to take software and put something out into the world without writing lines of code. I mean, you could argue you have to write lines of code with WordPress, but largely I felt like no uh, WordPress was a no-code, low-code offering, whatever, 15 years ago. What is interesting to me in this space as I get to the question is I've been interviewing a lot of folks who use no code to build their platforms like or build their solutions like a bubble.io or something like that. And what's fascinating to me is there's not a lot of people who are really in it for the ownership of the code. Like they don't care that they don't oh, I don't I shouldn't say they don't care. They think about it. But it doesn't move them to say, "Oh, I own this code base." Is that interesting to you like coming where you came from has your th- has your thought process changed? Like all of us in the WordPress community, we love it because, oh, we could own this code. This is ours and we could do whatever we want with it, move it around. But then there's things like Bubble, Webflow, and you're stuck there. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't just peel it off and go somewhere. Is that, 
what does that how does that dynamic impact you and your decision making or just like thinking about products and building products is that a worry to you or you're just like hey it's, it is what it is i mean i would probably say that it would be a consideration to me right so like we i use no code tools in my business as well but I can easily replace them with something else, right? And I make sure that ultimately I, I at least own the data that goes with that. And I would be, I, I would be reluctant to build a software business with no code tools, right? With that said, though, and, and the reason I would be reluctant is for those things, the reasons you mentioned. Like I, I would imagine that at some point, like you have some platform risk, and at some point, like migrating from what you have to something that you own, like might be challenging. What I will say, though, is I think what is inspiration, kind of inspiring at this stage about the no-code and low-code movement is that it is empowering a new batch of creators and people coming to the fore. And I would totally, like, if you're a first-time software founder at this stage, and especially if you're not a builder yourself, i.e. you can't write the code, I think writing, building by using a no-code solution to build something of value for clients and getting that first thousand or two thousand or three thousand, whatever you know, kind of dollars of kind of your know, recurring revenue in place that allows you to make a bigger decision about what you want to do with your kind of career, i.e. maybe you're employed. I think that's perfectly fine. I think the the key thing here is with any technological solution, I was I, I always believed in this. And I say this as maybe perhaps the best example is the following. As a co-founder in WooCommerce, I still believe that if you have 10 different e-commerce merchants today, for some of them, WordPress plus WooCommerce makes sense, and for others, Shopify makes more sense. And I think the same way about kind of any tech decision that you make here is really apply a horses for courses mentality. There's context. And acknowledging that if you go no code, there are advantages and there are disadvantages of that, right? Same with kind of you know, writing your own code and you know perhaps having to pay an engineer and finding budget to do that. Nothing is going to be perfect. I, as I said, I, I broadly think that this is a great movement. And I think, and I hope that it empowers and inspires a whole new batch of creators to do things that otherwise seem, perhaps seem too small to do, right? Because it didn't seem like, it didn't feel meaningful for an engineer or a gifted kind of technical builder to chase these problems. But now, because there we have these tools, there's a bunch of other people that can build you know, true, valuable solutions for these seemingly smaller kind of problems. So, yeah, yeah that's that's my gut feel here. Yeah. And, and there's still, at the end of the day, look, I mean, <clears throat> I've been talking about this with other people on the show before. I saw a bubble. I was fascinated by it. And I was looking at it. I was like, wow, okay, like I can, now I can build an app. It's great. I learned how to build a website with WordPress, right? And, and do all these different things, e-commerce stores, et cetera. And then I looked at Bubble. I was like, wow, I can build an app. This is really cool. And then I sat down at that blank canvas like everyone else. And I said, wait a minute, this is not as easy as I thought it was going to be. Like there's still a learning curve there. Still, you got to have some kind of, you know, aptitude to get into this thing. But uh, either way, like it is interesting that people are now trading that Mm, freedom might be even too much of a, a, a deep word, but freedom of that code and that movement and that portability with it just works and it's all there and I don't have to do anything with it, which is largely, I guess, has been the thing against WordPress all the time. Anyway, it's like, yeah, I don't want to update it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to patch it. I just want a platform that does <laughs> well, it. Well, and, and realistically, Matt, I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, that beyond the kind of the open nature of, of WordPress, most people that use WordPress or something attached to it, they don't need the openness thereof like plus they should never get stuck into the code at all ever right so 
I think for many WordPress users, these that there was always a kind of always, almost a misnomer, right? That that's not the reason to necessarily use WordPress. Yes, there are people that do incredible stuff with WordPress, and they benefit from having that access to the code, right? That openness. But for most other people, they need other things. And I think when I think again about low code stuff, I think engineering or building a product itself, that's these days, that's the easier thing to do in kind of in software. The much harder thing to do is like, how do you, like, how do you market something? How do you sell something? How do you retain customers over time? So like trading a bit of openness to get to market quickly to validate those other things, I think is totally worthwhile there. And as I said, like, I think like many people don't need, ultimately need that openness or not to the extent that they think or thought that they needed it. We're on the path to talk about your book, Life Profitability. But before we get there, you do still own Cogsy, right? You haven't sold that one yet? <laughs> yes, I st- I'm still owner. Okay. <laughs> uh, make smarter purchasing, make smarter inventory purchasing decisions, Cogsy.com. Cogsy helps DD- direct-to-consumer brands eliminate manual spreadsheets and guesswork to automate. How did you get, and I, I can kind of guess because, I mean, you helped create WooCommerce, but how did you find direct-to-consumer brands? How did you get in that space? And my God, are there too many of them? <laughs> because and, and let me and let me stage it by saying, I don't know, the other day I searched for some new uh, summers coming here in the States. So I searched for whatever, a pair of like, summer shoes. And on Instagram, I have shoes that are supposed to change my life, shoes that are sustainable for the environment, shoes that could help me walk on the moon. Like who the hell is pitching all of these direct-to-consumer brands uh, and who's making all the money in the middle? But I don't know. I'll let you tell me your experience with the DTC market. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I think you might be right in the sense that there are probably too many of these, right? And you know, I think that the next few years will, will be telling there in the sense that, because I think part of the hypothesis of having these brands versus major brands at least is that it ultimately gives you you and I as consumers choice, like infinite choice, really. And the question is whether we can turn that choice into something that is economically viable for most of these businesses, right? So I think, I personally think the market is a little bit frothy and many of them are experiencing significant top-line growth without necessarily figuring out their kind of the fundamental health of their business, right? So I think in that sense, the next couple of years will be Interesting. Even though we're seeing uh, more and more people spending more of their money online, like shifting offline to you know, online, and that's been accelerated in the last year, theoretically, there's still a cap somewhere in terms of what, what disposable income is for, for people and what they kind of spend it on. So that's my gut feel there. I What I like about the the sector, though, generally, as <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur, right? Which means these are other businesses doing... In, doing interesting things at that kind of forefront of emerging trends. And I think for, for Cogsy at least is like, I want to play along with that. Like I want to like be at that forefront, learn with those kind of your founders and kind of your senior leadership teams at those kind of brands and figure out how can we help them build better businesses here. And I mentioned that I think a big part of the last couple of years for e-commerce brands has been like a lot of top line growth and we're going to start seeing things shift. You know, customer acquisition cost is up across the board, right? Data and privacy, the concern continues to rise there. So marketing attribution is going to be much harder. So I, I think that there's a pivot point or a tipping point in the next you know, year or two where those businesses need to figure out their fundamentals. And I think that's what Cogsy stands for here is we hope to help them figure out like how do you kind of actually structure your business internally, those unsexy parts of your business, the things that we often neglect 
in a way that actually creates a healthy business, it's not just a kind of a thriving top line business. And I, the the go to example here is if anyone wanted to kind of read up on this, Professor Scott Galloway did a fascinating analysis of Casper, the mattress brand. I think either just before or just after they listed publicly last year, but they were essentially kind of you know on a I think a twelve hundred dollar sale of a mattress. They were losing almost four hundred dollars, right? And yet they got to IPO. Now, in my opinion, as a almost as an old school entrepreneur, like I look at that, I'm like, how the hell that can the how did all the public markets even kind of say that this was going to be okay, right? But I think that kind of story like should become less prevalent for us as a society to move forward. Like we need to build businesses that are financially healthy. And Cogsy, at least from an inventory standpoint, wants to support brands that kind of want to build that kind of longer term sustainable healthy businesses. Yeah. I, I was just about to say, like, I thought I was going to ask you, do you think it's the fashion and clothing that's the the largest? But you're also right. There's that mattresses is ridiculous. There's like 15 of them that will ship you a, mat, a California King mattress in a shoebox. And then you open it up and it turns into this massive mattress. Like what's going on here? Like as a consumer, how am I paying $4,000 for that shoebox that turns into a mattress? That's what I want to know. It, it actually kind of goes to... to it almost makes you wonder, and you probably know this a lot better uh, than most folks, that when you hear those stories of losing $400 per mattress and how does they, how do they even do this, uh, kind of goes to show you the value of acquiring a customer like you and I, like the value it is to, to get us. Because I'm assuming that at Casper, it's not just, okay, we sold you a mattress, but now we're going to try to sell you pillows. We're going to try to sell you bed sheets. We're going to try to sell you something else. And a lot of people look at it as, yeah, like if it's branding and marketing and like this 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 thing that we can accessorize and come back around and sell you again, we'll take that $400 hit on the mattress. But I don't know how healthy that is. And I don't know how many other businesses aside from, I don't know, a, a luxury item like that, a, a $1,200 mattress or even a, a pair of sandals, how these businesses can survive without thinking that way and executing on that. So I feel like everything is a big risk at that yeah. point for any, any exactly. of these businesses. And, and by the way, that that is exactly the <clears throat> if you if you look at the funded kind of you know, e-commerce brands that pop up, um, that's exactly what they look at is that kind of that customer lifetime value and how that relates to either your customer acquisition cost or your kind of CAC payback period, because they're trying to figure out at some point, like even if they do it kind of in a way that is loss making now, they're hoping that they can find the product catalog and the repeat purchase rates and ultimately that lifetime value over time, say 18, 24, kind of 30 months to turn this whole thing into kind of a profitable kind of business. And that's, I think there's sound logic there. I don't disagree with the logic. The reality is just that for most businesses, like if you're not venture venture funded and you don't have the really, really kind of your deep war chest, like that's very, very hard to do. Because ultimately like there's no there's no guarantee that you can eventually flip that switch and say, my customer acquisition is suddenly going to become profitable or I'm suddenly going to figure out something in a kind of your channel, a marketing channel that kind of totally turns my unit economics around. So I just think it's risky. And I think like for the rest of us, we should take that model with a, the kind of a grain of salt and figure something out that's, yeah. I think, slightly, maybe not necessarily conservative, but a little bit more realistic in terms of like, what can we do on a, a more limited or more modest budget that stays within those confines of what I would term to be kind of, again, what constitutes a recent, reasonably healthy kind of business? 
Yeah. I grew up in the car business and my family owned a few car dealerships and I grew up in that business. And now we're going to sort of transition in, uh, into your book and get my, my therapy session for, the, <laughs> for this morning in. But it, it's selling a car. Imagine like giving somebody a $30,000 car, watching them drive off the lot, just giving it to them for free and being like, well, we'll get them back on oil changes. Like as they come back, we'll make that money back in about eh, 20 years <laughs> on oil changes. It's going to be impossible. In the, the opening uh but in the opening segments of your book, there's a, a really short segment that's in there. And I felt like you could have written the whole book based on this one title called The Road to Hell. And you have this moment where you're describing your, yourself like just constantly working in your youth. And, and, and I'll let you sort of illustrate the premise of the book. I feel like it's the separation that we do not value ourselves and we should not value ourselves just based on the work that we do and just living in this in this intense moment of, I need to get another customer. I need to get a marketing site out. I need to do all these things. But I grew up in it and I just those, that simple statement was like, yeah, that, that was me. Like that was me my entire life. Like I started working at the dealerships ever since I could remember, I think the fifth grade, my dad put me to work, like doing landscaping, delivering parts for cars as I got older and could drive, selling cars, cleaning cars, delivering cars, doing all this stuff. And then the age of the consumer internet came out and I was he, he knows how to use a computer. He's the internet sales manager, right? This is like before any of this stuff was legitimized to the consumer. And I was like, yeah, that was me. I didn't stop. I still have problems stopping. But now with three young boys, I, I am starting to separate that. I have no choice but to separate that that lifestyle now. So uh, illustrate the premise of the book and you know what you want people to really take away from uh, the work you put into this into this into this book. Yeah, and I'll probably kind of you know, mirror your your story there as a kind of a as a as a way to introduce the book, right? So I guess the context here, Matt, is that I started working on kind of entrepreneurial projects when I was in high school, and that continued throughout kind of the four years I spent at university. Th those were also the years that I kind of discovered WordPress, started doing but of consulting. Eventually, got into kind of building themes, free th you know, themes initially, then kind of premium themes alongside kind of other greats like Brian Gardner. Like we were, we were the first people in that time, kind of starting to sell themes. And then I built kind of the original premium news theme for anyone that can remember and release it in November two thousand seven. And like our calendar, academic calendar year ended kind of end of November, so that coincides. And like that's kind of literally like. But, makes a, a whole bunch of dominoes fall over in my life. Because from there, like I had always had this vision of ultimately being an entrepreneur. But then releasing that theme suddenly accelerated that path. Like I I mostly skipped the corporate route. I spent six weeks in corporate in kind of January and February of 2008 before I started working on on Woo Themes full-time. And this was before it was Woo, you know, Woo Themes. But Mag and Mark were there. We were building themes together. And what really happened there was, and that's why I call this the road to hell, was the the focus and my perspective on life got so narrow because I'd always had this idea of being an entrepreneur. And then suddenly I get momentum, an insane momentum on this path. And that is perfectly fine viewed in isolation. But what ultimately happened years later in my life, I got to a point where everything in my life kind of you know, fell apart. And part of why that happened was I was never aware of the collateral damage that I was creating elsewhere in my life by having this really laser focus on like a single thing, which, which could probably like, it wasn't just business. It was probably more about kind of ambition and kind of growth and 
wanting to feel relevant, i.e. all those things that are probably more ego-related. And again, not in a bad way. I don't think if we didn't have ego, we wouldn't have entrepreneurs and innovators and disruptors, right? Artists, right? So, but I really got to that point where I started acknowledging that I'd accrued so many life costs, so many so many moments that I missed in my life because I was so focused on this one thing. And it was, it was in that moment and that kind of, you know, kicked off a whole new kind of a whole new path of realizing and kind of undoing that and shaping a new narrative, which kind of eventually led me to this point. I mean, I, I learned many of these things with my team at where we first kind of communicated this being a, you know, we're a life and family first company. And then through that evolution, I got to the point where I kind of now think about how can I build a, a business that is life profitable? And what I mean with that, and the reason I say that's the kind of the new measure of entrepreneurial success is I don't just want to build a business or build a career that is n- kind of profitable in the narrow sense of the word, i.e. financially profitable. I really want to build a business or have a career that profits my whole life. And what it just means is work and business and ambition is just one part of what I include in my life portfolio. But I need to make investments across that whole portfolio, whether it's my family, whether it's my health, whether it's exercising regularly, whether it's kind of reading, learning new things, whether it's being active in my community. It doesn't matter how any of us define that life portfolio, but I never want that to be just as narrow as it was during that really kind of rocket ship years of building Woo Themes and WooCommerce. And I didn't mean to blame Woo, you know, Woo and WooCommerce. Woo, let's just call it Woo there at all. It was a fantastic journey. But again, like it was, the focus was too narrow. There was, there was more to life than that. And at that stage, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I mean, I remember in my early twenties, early to mid twenties, the, again, that, like that laser focus, I I always tell a funny story that I, I had a, company that I started with a friend of mine at the time. And well, we're still friends today, I guess. I don't really talk to him, but <laughs> we were friends at that point. Uh, and we got some seed funding and we were building, we were building this. I remember, you have to remember this is years ago, Dropbox before Dropbox, right? Like we were building this theory of what if people could be in their home, in their office and save files to a device, which then synced to, I don't even think it was called the cloud back then, but synced it to the cloud or synced it to the internet and they could go home and work on that. And we were like, oh, this is genius. <laughs> like this is, this is amazing. And we were literally building little computers with Linux on it and file sharing and stuff like that. And we would rsync files to a server. And we had like accountants, local accountants. This is all done locally. And we had local accountants. They were like, this is awesome. Like this is, I can work, for, I can take my work home with me without all this stuff. And we we're like, we're going places. Like what, what Porsche do you want to get? Like we had like $20,000 in seed funding. We we're buying all this hardware. We we're proving out the model. And then his relationship crashed and burned with his girlfriend, who was the, <laughs> with, was the daughter of our seed, our seed investor. Uh, and then like Dropbox <laughs> was announced like nine months later. And I was just like, well, this is ridiculous. But I just remember like being so laser focused on that. And like you said, it wasn't even, I don't know, like it wasn't even just the business. It wasn't about just like, hey, I want to get this product out. But you're like, you're attaching yourself to this. And it's like, when I release this and become successful with this, well, people will certainly look at me in a different way. You know, it's so hard to detach yourself from that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe therapy literally is something that you do. And I want to say it's because growing up in a, in a family car business, 
that my grandfather started, you're, for me anyway, just living in seeing my grandfather, seeing my father, seeing my uncles like in this car dealership space and, and how they were revered in the local community was probably just an impact it had on me growing up and experiencing it, right? Not that my father put me at work, which was a love-hate relationship, <laughs> but also a great education. It's very hard to detach oneself from, from that experience. And maybe that's because local business is, there's a feedback loop that's there. And on the internet, it's just you behind a screen. You're like, I hope people like this. So you keep trying, like you keep trying for this feedback that you, that you would probably get in the local business. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the way I, I sort of summarize it in my head. Yeah, and like, two things. That, like one, one thing I can say, Matt, is I think many people have heard me tell the story about like part of me leaving Wu back in the day was because I wanted a new challenge and I, I felt like a one-hit wonder, right? And I wanted to prove myself again. And part of why I got myself to that point where you kind of my, my whole life was was on fire and I burned so many bridges was I was scared of failing to the point where people would say, hey, there was Eddie with all the bravado, leaving Wu, leaving a good thing, like saying he can do it again and now he's failed and then I'm not relevant. And like that that relevance, that feedback to, to your point, that validation that, hey, I'm okay. Yes, it's a driving force and has been a driving force for me. It hasn't been very healthy though, right? Like it definitely has a, yeah. a cost factor to that. And I I actually think the kind of, and when you say that, you know, when you speak about attachment, I think for me at least, it has been about redefining my identity, at least, and not being not being AD Rockstar, for example, but specifically not being just AD the entrepreneur. I think that's again like that's such a such a narrow definition of anyone to use a label to describe anyone. Like I'm just AD, you're just Matt, right? Yeah. Like we should never be, especially the singular things that we do. We should be, I think kind of all of the things I do, like that's 80. And like, there's no way to have a single label or a concise sentence or a biography that can explain all of those things. And I think as soon as we start yeah. accepting for ourselves that, hey, and again, like this was a big challenge for me. And part of that road to hell was I sat with my therapist, this is in 2018, and I was in a really tough place in the business and considered selling it and whatnot. And I, I told her, I said, listen, you're, I don't think I should sell because I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know who I am if I'm not the AD the entrepreneur. And she told me point blank. She said, you know what, AD, it, it's going to be really, really hard for you to have the kind of any kind of clarity about what comes next whilst you're in this thing. Like it's okay to just finish this thing, sit down and then kind of think through, you know, things through. But again, like that notion of what am I, if I'm not AD the entrepreneur was me giving the world almost the universe power by adhering to a label where like it wasn't a label that made sense. I mean, I, I still am partly an entrepreneur today, but I, again, like I don't think that explains all of me. And I think like that's the tricky parts where I think we get ourselves into where we've almost agreed this social contract by being something. And then when we don't want to be that thing anymore, that's when I think the kind of, we lose that purpose and meaning and we kind of suddenly want to start making the changes. And entrepreneurs often have that, right? I mean, we often hear entrepreneurs struggling with imposter syndrome, for example. So like that, that's where I think, I don't think labels are that helpful and we shouldn't hold too tightly to those labels. 
How did you f- commission yourself to want to become an entrepreneur? What what made you go down that path? I mean, for me, like I said, I, I was born I was born into it. Is that the same thing as you? Like you just had somebody in the family, somebody you grew up with it. Yeah, I want to do that too. Yeah, totally. My my dad, ever since I was a kid with uh, kind of you know any kind of consciousness where I can remember, um, my dad had his own businesses. So like I, I at least, and again, like my dad worked crazy, crazy hours, right? He missed much of my childhood because he was doing so many things, both in his business, but in, and, you know, in the community, like serving the school, serving the church, that kind of thing. But that was also like good or bad. Like that was the only, that was a prevalent kind of version of adult life that I understood. My mom was a teacher. She worked at the same school for, I think, 37 years, right? So complete opposite. But for whatever reason that like being an entrepreneur, like working for yourself, seeing my dad do that, like planted that seed that eventually I needed to do that. Again, like I said, you know, with Wu, that path got accelerated kind of significantly based on what my expectations were. But it was always part of my thinking that eventually I would get into building my own business. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not a question here. This is just more of this therapy session that we're going through. It's like, like, like that is something that I am trying to detach from. At the same time, like I've, I, I value the lessons. Look, nothing builds your <laughs> everything than sell, trying to sell a car. Like being in the Northeast of America in December when there's 17 feet of snow on the ground, when somebody walks onto a dealership lot, they don't want to talk to you. You don't want to talk to them. You don't want to sell. And this is back This is back when, when the consumer internet was just coming out and people didn't know prices. So people would come literally with what was known as the NADA book that had all the prices and values of cars. And I remember people would bring in like books and magazine articles and they, they just like spread it out on the table and like ready to go to war with you to buy a car, which I guess is le- still today. They just have on their iPhone yeah, and nothing builds your your skin, your thick skin like that. And at a very young age. So also a great lesson, but also, man, I don't know if I want my kids to have to constantly think that the only way out of this is to build a business. Now, uh, on the flip side of that coin, I also look at higher education and I'm like, it's ridiculous to spend $100,000 on a degree. Just go start your own business, son. Uh, like That's another thing that I look at too. So I'm like, eh, kind of at an inflection point here. Amazing. You, I mean, you know it's what, just- man, it's- I, I- yeah, and I mean the, those things you described there, by the way, I think are like those are probably the opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Whereas I think we're now seeing so many different options popping up in between. Right? I.e., for a kid finishing high school, should I go to some kind of tertiary institute to study further, or should I start a business? Like both those two are viable, and again, they have pros and cons to them. The yeah. the one thing I would add to that is, I I never mean to detract from the entrepreneurial path. I, I think it is a hugely kind of your know, meaningful, rewardful journey to take, right? What I will say though is I don't think that it and I'm not on in the camp of like Elon Musk saying, like sometimes building a business is like eating glass, right? I think that's also kind of a gross overstatement of things that neglects all the good parts of building a business. But what I will say is this is I think the the key thing for it, you know, any you know entrepreneur or one entrepreneur, i.e. someone that wants to start a business, the key thing for, for, for them to do is to really think through like why this path? Like, and what do I actually want to achieve? Because I think the things that people want, like none of us want money. Like we want the things money can buy for us. And oftentimes, I think entrepreneurs start in this journey because 
they value a sense of freedom, like the freedom to work on what you want, with whom you want, how you want, etc. But then we trade those kind of those freedoms for other things that we had before, right? So as a business owner, like I have my phone constantly with me and my business is on my phone, right? That's a freedom that I've traded. Whereas if I had a nine to five gig, like, in, and, if I, and if I was French, right, it's mandated by the government that my boss <laughs> cannot ping me or kind of compel me to keep my phone on beyond work hours. So we trade those freedoms. And what I'm getting at with this is if, if someone has that clarity to say, you know what, I actually want X, Y, Z, right, from my professional career, from my money-making kind of hours, then for many people, the better thing to do is to join a really great team that has a really kind of great working culture, solving a problem that's interesting, where you can make a contribution. Like that's, that's a much better, much healthier, much calmer, probably kind of path to get to the outcome that you want. By all means, for many people, there is that part of themselves. I mean, I know for me, like I, I want to make things. I want to put parts of myself out in the world. I want to build teams. And I, I don't think I can do that when I'm employed elsewhere. But for, as I said, for many other people, like those aren't their exact needs, right? They, they just want freedom of some sorts, part financial, part otherwise. And I think there are, are alternative routes, right? There that should at least be explored and that so this, I don't think we should badmouth being employed. I mean, I don't think we should romanticize entrepreneurship. I think that there are, like, there's nuance to that conversation at least. Yeah. I just realized why Craig moved to France. Like, <laughs> like it just dawned on me why my boss lives in France. Like, I, now it all makes sense. The book is Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. I mean, definitely dive in, like, if you're in the throes of what am I doing in this in this entrepreneurial journey? This is the the go-to book for you. Check it out. Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success. If you had to just give up building companies online, what would you do? Really good point. Gone to my head, probably uh, coaching um, and consulting. I, I already can coach other uh, entrepreneurs, other software founders, both privately and and via Dermotel SaaS Academy, where I'm also a client. And I really enjoy that. So I, I like the variety there. I like meeting with smart minds. So I would probably, yeah, that's probably kind of plan B at this stage. I'd be a landscaper. I'd just go to people and say, do you want me to cut your grass? <laughs> like, and they'd say, yes. And I'd say, where is it? They'd point to it. I'd say, okay, I'll cut that. Like, and that's it. Just give me $25 and I'm off. Put it in the back of my truck and I'm gone uh, is what I would do. Uh, no more dis heavy decisions. No more, I don't like that color blue or, oh, this this podcast doesn't sound good. I'm done. Just cut the grass. What length? Yeah. I'm out. Adi Pinar, thanks for joining uh, the podcast. Finally, even though it feels like you've been here a dozen times, you can get to the website. 80.me, A-D-I-I.me, cogz.com, the real business that he still owns and runs today. Check that out. Update your website, four times founder, three exits, and a new book. A another book down the pipe coming soon, or is this going to be a little bit of a pause before the next yeah, one? Yeah, a little bit of pause. Software businesses take up uh, a lot of time, admittedly. Yeah. And folks can find you where on Twitter, right? As it's, well, A-D-I-I. That's it. Awesome stuff. Thanks for uh, Thanks for joining the show today. Everyone else, matreport.com slash subscribe. Join that mailing list, matreport.com. For all of your WordPress news, thewpminute.com should be out by the time you hear this. It was a little bit of a delay because Apple had some kind of major outage of submitting podcasts. But by the time you hear this episode, thewpminute.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.